Hey everyone, Paul here. It's been a while since the last podcast happened. I think it was middle of May or end of May when I last did an episode, a conversation with Stephen Roach, where we talked about music. We talked about a biblical theology of altered states of consciousness. So, you know, a bunch of other stuff. If you haven't listened to that one, I encourage you to go back and listen to that that great conversation with Stephen Roach. Um, What I wanted to do, because I've been smack dab in the middle of an overwhelming project, not overwhelming, it's actually been great. I've been in the middle of writing my first book. We're nearing a completion, Um, actually going through some proof copies. Right now, I'm going to be sending out uh, a few copies to some people to hopefully garner some endorsements, but there are pre-orders available right now for a book entitled Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. You know, several years ago, maybe it was two years ago, I can't remember, COVID has totally thrown off my sense of time and space, but uh, a couple years ago at least, I started a series on the problem of evil. It's like a 20-hour long series, very extensive. We covered 2,000 years of not just biblical history, but Christian history. And I know many of you felt that series was pretty transformative in your life, and you reached out. A few people had thrown out the idea of, boy, if you did this as a book, I'd, I'd really enjoy it. I think it'd be a helpful resource in my life. And that got me thinking. I started doing some writing, turning those notes into what I would thought at the time would make a good book. I reached out to some publishers. Um, no one was interested in picking it up at the time. You know, much of the feedback I was getting was like, hey, you know what, great idea, but we really need you to have like 10,000 Twitter followers for us to be, or Instagram followers for us to be, you know, interested. And I said, eh, I'm not going to hunt for that right now. So I kind of put the book on the shelf. And then uh, recently, just as I've been doing some more writing, uh, writing for a couple different magazines, uh, of which I ha- will have a new article coming out in Ecstasis and uh, the very near future, but uh, I'm realizing, rediscovering the joy of writing something that I had so thoroughly enjoyed in seminary, uh, in graduate school, and also as an undergrad. My um, my minor was in English, so I've always had an affinity for writing, and I thought, you know what, I've got 15,000 words in on this idea for a book. I wonder if people would be interested if I finished it, uh, if there would be people interested in reading it. So I did a, a sort of informal informal poll with the people on Patreon that have been supporting this podcast and got an overwhelming yes, please put out a book on the problem of evil. So I thought it'd be a good idea just to, to finish that work. I thought I would learn a lot in the process. Um, I am going around the traditional publisher route and just publishing this independently, just so I could um, make sure I got it out in a timely manner, not try to wait for someone else to say, hey, yeah, we think this is worth publishing. So um, I'm dependent on your pre-orders to make that happen. And so I'm very thankful to those of you that have pre-ordered the book. If you haven't done so, uh, I'd encourage you to do so. A link is available on my, um, I'll put it actually in the description of the show. But a link's available if you wanted to do that. We're also going to be doing, for those that pre-order, we're going to be doing a a book group. Uh, It'll be on Zoom. We'll have a group discussion. I haven't figured out quite yet the rhythm for whether or not we're going to do one for each chapter or we'll combine chapters. But what we'll do is once that book is released, I'll facilitate some conversations on Zoom. We'll do some group discussion on the content of the book. It'll be a good opportunity for us to process questions that you have about the problem of evil. 
We'll be able to all learn together. We'll be able to share from our diverse perspectives. We'll be able to share our interpretations of the book, especially as we're interpreting, you know, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, all of these really important minds in Christian thought in the Western tradition. It'd be really good for us to compare notes, see what we've learned from them, um, see what you think of my conclusions in the book. I think it'll be a really, really fun process to go through together. So if you pre-order, you will be signed up with the, um, the access uh, link for those Zoom conversations as well. What I wanted to do today is I wanted to offer um, a little insight into some of the stuff that we do on Patreon for those who are supporting. One of the things we do is a uh, regular, maybe not necessarily monthly, there can be ebbs and flows, but we try to, I try to do a regular Q&A episode. Sometimes in these Q&A episodes, I'll address one major question. At other times, I will address several different questions. We'll try to, you know, kind of do rapid fire. What I wanted to do this month, I had two really good questions that came in, and I answered the first question in the Patreon-only Q&A episode last week. But this was a really good question asked by patron Mike Thomas. And I thought what I'd like to do with this one is actually open up to share with all of you, even regular listeners who aren't supporting this podcast, I thought I'd, I'd share his question and share my response to it as a bit of a, a window into some of the stuff that we're doing over on my Patreon page, but also because I think this is a, an important topic to discuss. I think it's um, something, especially for those of you that are currently still committed to Christian community and the Christian story, I think this is an area of growth, an area of reform that Christians uh, throughout a variety of contexts, whether you're in an evangelical context, whether you're in a more mainline context, um, I think this is an area in which we need to work to reframe some of the language that we have used and the emphases that we've used, particularly here in the West, to describe and to discuss God's work of salvation. So without further ado, let's get into today's bonus Q&A episode. Again, you'll find uh, bonus Q&A episodes like this all over my Patreon page. If you become a supporter, you can go back into the back catalog and, and, and check out some others. But today's bonus episode, I want to give an extra special thanks to uh, Mike Thomas for the great question for all those who've been supporting on Patreon. Let's get into Mike's question and my response. Now, Mike asks a great question. Mike Thomas is regularly involved in our group Zoom discussions and is a regular contributor to forum posts and discussion forums. And one of the things I appreciate about you, Mike, and those of you that have interacted with Mike, Mike didn't necessarily grow up in an evangelical context like a good percentage of supporters and listeners to this podcast have. And oftentimes, Mike comes with questions that I think are, are challenging to evangelical conventions and norms. And I, I think those challenges are good. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some of Mike's question here. Mike says this, I'm not sure how to best phrase this into a question since it's more of an assertion, but I've long been critical of the church's obsession with, quote, personal salvation. It seems very self-centered and contrary to the teachings of Jesus, which I, was, which I believe was very much focused on love and care for others. How are we supposed to spread the message of God's love to the rest of the world when we are all focused on just saving ourselves? And why should we be invested in loving others when we have already convinced ourselves that God is going to condemn them all to eternal hellish torment? How do we get on this road of personal salvation when the greatest love is self-sacrifice for others? Did we go down a Gnostic rabbit hole 
seeking special knowledge. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't salvation, at least in the Old Testament, more of a group thing? The salvation of Israel, not just the individual. I don't think Jesus ever asked us to save anyone. He just asked us to love them. Boy, great questions here, Mike, and I want to address this. There's multiple angles I want to address with this question. First of which, first response I want to give to this is that the emphasis on personal individual salvation, I believe, is a side effect of people trying to figure out how the gospel fits in their cultural context. The fundamental building block of Western civilization is the individual, while the East and much of the global South They start with the group, the tribe, the collective. So you get your identity in many Eastern cultures and much of the global South. You get your identity not first as an individual, but first as a member of a particular group, whether that be a family uh, connection, a kin connection, a nationality connection, uh, a place that you were situated in the caste. Um, that's very different than in Western Civ, where Western Civ has largely carried on this emphasis of the fundamental building block of civilization is the individual. There's obviously, um, there's obviously a, you know, a degree of, of, of Greek philosophy that we have to thank for that or to be upset about with that. But there's also the, um, the contributions of Rene Descartes and Enlightenment thought that has made this a prominent feature of Western, Western thought and Western Civ. So when we think about why does this emphasis happen, why does this seem to be the norm, and then, and then Mike is doing what we all should be doing and stepping back, reading the biblical literature, checking our own biases and going, well, this is interesting because I don't see Jesus see, seemingly communicate the gospel, the good news, the message of salvation in this particular format. Why does it seem different? That's a really good question to ask. And it's actually difficult to do when we are maybe afraid of confronting our biases, or maybe we are so entrenched in tribalistic ideas that we think what we have to do when we step into the scriptures is we have to find fodder and ammunition to to win our side of the argument, to win our side of a culture war, to defend our particular denomination. And so, you know, a lot of this work, the difficult work of reading Scripture with a fresh lens, is a work of the Spirit. It's a work of counseling and spiritual formation. It's a, it's a work of being exposed to cultures beyond our own and seeing the beauty in those cultures. When we maybe perhaps uh, encounter a missionary who has lived in a foreign context where they actually come to us, a Christian that has come to us from a non-Western context. And we can begin to maybe see the beauty in the way that the, the scriptures and the biblical revelation have taken a unique shape in their cultural context. It, it broadens our horizons. So I think to graciously step back and go, well, why? Why has this happened in our context? And as I'm about to demonstrate, uh, Mike is right. This is not the normative way that Jesus or the New Testament authors frame issues of salvation. Why is that? Well, To be fair to us, I think this is, in some ways, this is the, this is the, this is the application, this is the meaning that some have, with varying degrees of correctness or incorrectness and how they presented this, have tried to figure out what does the gospel mean in our particular context. 
And so when our context that we inhabit is largely centered around the individual, it's no surprise that pastors, theologians, biblical commentators, even just lay people like you and me picking up our Bible, we are going to be looking for individual points of application from the scriptures. But the hard work we need to do is to not just jump into the point of biblical interpretation where we go, what does this mean to me? You know, we, we jump into that, maybe one of the final steps of biblical interpretation. We have a propensity, especially in evangelical context, we have a propensity to jump to that step first. Uh, if not just evangelical context, but we might say, you know, those that inhabit charismatic contexts, um, Pentecostal context, this is often the case, we jump straight to going, what does this mean to me? And we typically frame that around, well, what is the Spirit saying to me? Which there's no doubt that the Spirit can just illuminate things off the text, off the page, and, and straight into our hearts. There's no doubt about that, but oftentimes that sort of approach is a license to um, bless and sanctify our our own biases. How do we get beyond that? Well, uh, we need to step as much as we can with the help of trusted guides, with people who have given their life to study uh, the first century context of the New Testament, to studying the cultural context, the linguistic norms. They can help us step beyond some of our biases and go, all right, first of all, the Bible is written to these particular people, though it also has meaning and application to me as part of the continuum of Christian community that was, that was begun here in the first century. Here's the unique thing that I, I believe with the help of trusted guides, you know, the biblical scholars through the, the, the perspective of even seeing those from outside of our, our particular cultures engage with the scriptures. I, I think of my professor a great professor at um, Bethel Seminary. I don't know if he's still there or not, but Dr. David Na, who came from Japan. And Dr. Na would help us see the implications of the gospel to Eastern contexts as well, and maybe help us see how there might be more of a degree of harmony in certain cases with the way an Eastern mind might engage with the scriptures versus our Western uh, lens. The unique thing I, I would say, what I've learned, the unique thing about the biblical emphasis of salvation in the first century context is that it is revolutionary. It's revolutionary in this sense. It's revolutionary in that its implications had both an individual and a, collect, and a collective emphasis. There is an emphasis on the implication of the gospel, the implication of the message of Jesus for the individual, which was radical in a largely collectivist society, but also a very important emphasis on the impact for groups, for communities, for collective identities as well, which is revolutionary to many of us in Western cultures. Like many non-Western cultures, the first century context of the original biblical audiences were largely collectivist in their orientation meaning the individuals find their identity through group identification and their role in the group first. You don't think of yourself as, I am, this is a unique feature, Jonathan Haidt brings this up in his book, The Righteous Mind, but there is a unique feature of the Western mind. If you 
ask people to describe themselves in predominantly Western cultures, we'll say right here smack dab in the Midwest, good old Minneapolis, Minnesota, you ask somebody on the street, describe yourself. Oftentimes, people will use language to describe um, maybe character qualities about themselves that they, they might describe their inner thought life. They might say, I'm happy. Um, I'm outgoing. Um, in Eastern cultures, though, what you find is if you ask somebody to describe themselves, they most often start with what their role is in relation to the group, the particular group, whether it's their kin or their community. So they will describe the role that they play in the group first. And this is very much a normal feature of the first century biblical context that we see in the biblical literature of the New Testament. The hierarchical ordering of these groups in the first century were not typically based on like meritocracy, where you have, you know, social mobility that allows you to move up and down a status ladder. It's not like that. It's not based on individual achievement, which might be one of the features of what we say is like the American dream. The American dream is, is largely, or at least in theory, supposed to be a meritocracy where you can achieve greater rank status in the social ladder, which often, as a part of the American dream, comes with you know, increased material wealth through your hard work, determination, through individual achievement. You can move up and down the status ladder. Much of your standing, though, in the group in the first century, however, was not, merito- was not a meritocracy. It wasn't based on your achievements. It was based on the socioeconomic status of your birth. It might be based on the status of where you sit in the hierarchy based on your ethnicity and especially your gender. So the radical good news of the gospel was that God made you as an individual image bearer. He made you as an individual image bearer and that you can be as an individual, regardless of your status, regardless of where you sit on the status ladder, you can be united to Christ and that you can individually call God Abba Father. Incredible revolutionary news affirming the dignity and the value, the inherent worth of the individual, that God has thoughts towards you, that the gospel is good news for you as an individual, but also the radical good news of the gospel in the first century was that it also carried with it this incredible this incredible good news in its collectivist dimension, in the collective dimension, in the community dimension. The good news in the community or the collective dimension was that you were now part of a new family and you were part of a citizenship. You were a citizen of a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of kingdom not organized around the same status norms as the prevailing culture. And it's hard for us in our like Western individual meritocracy to truly understand how much good news that was to those in more collectivist first century cultures who felt faded, faded, their identity was faded to the social, socioeconomic status that they were born into, their ethnicity, or their gender. 
And the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God was you were not just an individual who God had thoughts towards, but you are now being translated into a new kind of community. You are citizens of a new kind of kingdom organized around different principles and values, way different than the status norms of that prevailing culture in the first century. Here's one example of this, where you can see the the communal and collective implications of this good news. Galatians 3, Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This, uh, that's the end of the quote there. This is revolutionary news that I think we need to grasp better hold of to help balance out some of our individualistic proclivities. A significant portion of this good news was that you were being organized into a better group, a better identity than your just your ethnic identity, whether you were male or female, right? Whether you were born into slavery or whether you were born a free man, there is no distinction in Christ. And so Paul's instructions over and over again to Christian communities in the first century is like, remember your baptism. Remember what you were born again into. Remember this good news that you are not known for just being like, you're an Ethiopian, you're a woman, you are slave, you are free, you are rich, you are poor. In Christ, there was a new community, a new collective that was being developed and organized around Christ. This is also why, and I've talked about this numerous times before in different contexts, but this is why Paul chastises the church at Corinth for still abiding by their normal cultural status distinctions when they came to worship together and had communion. We see this in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm starting off at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suffers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then you can jump down to verse uh, 33 and 34. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should eat all together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. What was going on at Corinth? And why did Paul need to correct it? At the church in Corinth, what was happening was, and again, I've discussed this at numerous points before, but at the church at Corinth, what was happening was you have... Um, 
the community gathered for worship, and as the culmination of worship was the celebration of communion, it wasn't just like, hey, you know, we just have a piece of bread and a cup of wine, or, you know, for you Baptists out there, <laughs> you know, a little little swig of grape juice. That wasn't it. It was a it was a potluck meal. It was a it was a it was a family community meal. And this was so revolutionary because in the Greco-Roman, the Hellenistic culture of the the first century in the Roman world, who you ate with was a big deal. You don't eat with people of different levels on the status. I mean, you'd love to, if you're at the bottom of the status ladder, to eat with somebody that's on the top of the status ladder. But if you're on the top of the status ladder, you do not eat with people that are below you. This is such a big deal. I mean, this is why, you know, Jesus eating with sinners was such a big deal. It was like, Jesus, do you know who you're eating with? You know, if you're supposed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? It was a huge deal. You don't eat with people that you're not of equal status of. And, you know, in many ways, it's like, it's not entirely different from the way things are today. You know, if, if someone came in to a really upscale restaurant, let's say one of my favorites here in town, this is not a paid advertisement by any means, but if they came into Spoon and Stable in, 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 in Minneapolis, like one of the best restaurants in the city, and you sat down you know, and you brought in with you across from the table a homeless person, you know, a person experiencing homelessness or, you know, maybe even just, you know, kind of a, a blue collar worker still, you know, still in their, their Dickies uniform and they, they just got off the, the, the automotive line or something like that. You know, if you sat down, brought them into dinner with everybody dressed really, really nicely in the, the re, like top of the line menu, there would be some possible problems with that. And many of us would probably not do it. We, we don't often eat or get together with people on different, um, maybe on different levels of the status ladder, except outside of church, right? It's not that different. And so what was happening at Corinth was they were gathering for their post, you know, not post-service, this was the service, po- you know, it was during their worship, uh, the, the climactic Lord's table. And what was happening was, some of the low, lower, you know, status ladder workers couldn't get there on time for the meal because they were still working in the day. By the time they would show up to the, the, the church communion potluck, you, they were finding that there wasn't like food left and that the wine was drunk. And even so much so that, you know, like the people that were there had so much wine to drink that they're getting drunk at communion at church, at the, at the church potluck party. And Paul chastises them, saying, like, you guys can do that at your home. When you come together, like, remember your baptism. You should all eat together because this was a sign that you guys are all now grafted in Christ on the same level of status together. You guys are all in Christ, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. We eat together. We worship together as a model of the new kind of community. So this is a big deal. Your new identity was in Christ, but being in Christ was also part of a new reordered community. You know what Eugene Peterson called a a colony of heaven and a country of death. You have to realize that this emphasis on 
being a part of a completely reoriented human community was just as much of a central feature of the new covenant as inheriting eternal life. This is why most of the New Testament letters aren't actually treatises on what you have to believe in to get to some post-mortem paradise. Go through them. Go through the New Testament. You will find an absence of that sort of language. And we're going to go through together, do a little bit of an overview here in a moment. But these, these letters, when you look at the epistles, even when you look at the gospels, but you look at like the Pauline epistles, which I'm, I've made a couple references to already, these are occasional letters addressing how Christian community needs to continually be reformed around Christ's vision for the world. It's not about like, man, this church is really struggling with questions about, do we have the right things that we're believing in in order for you know, the, me to get saved, for me to go to heaven when I die? Now, I don't want to downplay the significance of people's questions about well, what happens to me as an individual when I die? You know, because life expectancy in the first century in the Roman Empire wasn't great. So it was definitely on their minds, right? Um, you know, if you were one of the 55 to 65% of the population who lived past the age of five, you might make it to 45 years old, 40 to 45 years old. Like that's average life expectancy in the Roman Empire if you make it past the age of five, and only 55% to 65% of people do that, right? There's a lot of questions about death and a lot of death all around. But when you look at the biblical evidence, the, the question about what happens when I die seems to be much more connected to, well, you know, Jesus promised a kingdom that would finally set the world right. What happens if I'm killed for my faith or I die before that day happens? That's the more pressing question that we, can, that we see evidence of in the, in the New Testament. It's not like a just, you know, a general, um, you know, a, a general sense of like, well, I wonder what happens to me when I kick the bucket. It's like, hey, Jesus, if we're going to follow you and we're going to do this thing, we know we're going to experience resistance. And I will very, it's very much possible that I might be killed for my faith, my profession of faith in Jesus as Lord. So if that happens, or if for some reason I just get so old and I break down and I die before you return and before the final setting right of the world, then what happens? And those are two very different questions. But the answer to that question that the New Testament authors give was the hope of the resurrection. The hope was that even if you died before the final setting right of all things, that those in Christ would be raised to life to participate in the fruits of what they sacrificed for. That was the hope. And that's still a very different question than just the general sense of, well, what happens when I die? So the Bible does address this, but kind of like not as much as you think. It's hard to say whether or not our increased lifespan, reduced child mortality rates, and better standard of living actually contributes to a greater anxiety about death than, say, with the people in the first century who saw death more regularly. I do think the gospel gives us good news for our death anxiety as individuals, but making that the sole focus 
simply doesn't have biblical warrant. The message of Jesus wasn't, I know all of you are anxious about your eventual death, but here's some good news. You can go to heaven when you die if you believe the right information about me. It wasn't that. Let's take a moment now to explore what the New Testament actually says about heaven as we consider it today. What does the New Testament have to say about this common belief that the whole goal of it all is for individuals to get access to Christ, to access to right information or right knowledge about about Jesus in order to secure a more pleasurable post-mortem experience in heaven? The New Testament actually has very little to say about heaven, other than it being the name for the transcendent abode of God and his rule. If you do a cursory search for the word heaven in the New Testament, you're actually going to find a lot of references. But when you comb through those references, what you will find is very, very little about heaven as some sort of post-mortem destination that you know, especially when we consider the amount of emphasis that we have seen given to, well, the hope of it all is going to heaven when you die, or the sort of like altar calls many of you have probably experienced in your life, the evangelism, um, the evangelism strategies of telling somebody, you know, if you died tonight, do you know where you would be? That sort of stuff is absent from the New Testament. And I want to go through and and demonstrate how the word heaven is used and why we need to, as as Mike is suggesting, we need to readjust no matter how many times we've heard, you know, the Romans road stuff, the, 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 you know, the, the, the formulaic salvation principles for what you need to do or what you need to believe or what sorts of rites you have to perform in order to go to heaven when you die to help you see that this is not the focus of salvation. So let's go through it here together, okay? The New Testament has very little to say about heaven other than, again, it being the name given to this transcendent abode of God and his rule. In Matthew's gospel, the word heaven is used 76 times, but that's primarily because Matthew employs the phrase kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God, which what you would see in Mark and Luke, because he doesn't want to overuse the word God in a way that would potentially offend his primarily Jewish audience. So keep in mind, Matthew's contextual audience, we we know this from all the unique um, emphases that Matthew gives to Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and from the language that Matthew uses, that Matthew is more than likely, almost certainly, addressing a biblical audience that had far more ethnic Jews in them than perhaps, than definitely Luke's gospel, for example. And because historically Jewish people have had this um, deep, deep reverence for, the, for using the term God, this deep, deep reverence for going, hey, we do not want to use God's name in vain, which not, doesn't just mean we don't, you know, say God and other swear words combined. It means that we don't just vainly go around 
you know, using names, uttering the word God. We're going to do it with respect. And so Matthew, with a degree of like humility, with a degree of textual awareness for his audience, just goes, instead of saying kingdom of God over and over and over again, which is what, you know, uh, Matthew, or what Mark and Luke say, he uses kingdom of heaven, but he is not talking about a place that you go to when you die. Every time you see kingdom of heaven, you can swap out kingdom of God. And it means the same thing in Matthew's gospel. So Matthew uses the word heaven 76 times, but it is primarily in service of the term kingdom of heaven. Other times where the word is used, again, it has to do with the transcendent abode of God. Mark's gospel uses the word heaven 17 times, but it is always in reference to the place where the Father and his angels dwell. Nothing in Mark's gospel about the word heaven has anything to do with it being a place you go to when you die. It's not mentioned once. Jesus doesn't bring it up. Obviously not a big deal to Mark. The same is true in Luke's gospel, where the only mention of someone going to heaven is Jesus and the ascension. In John's gospel, the word heaven is used to talk about Christ's authority as being sent from heaven, right? So if heaven is the abode of God, John frequently focuses on Christ being sent from heaven, the word from heaven, the son of man, son of God sent from heaven. He is pointing to heaven again as the abode of God and his rule, and is primarily focused on connecting Christ as being sent from heaven. He is the authoritative son of man, the God-man, the word made flesh from heaven. But in John's gospel, Jesus doesn't give people formulas for like, hey, this is what you have to do to go to heaven. A lot of talk about eternal life, very little talk about heaven. The book of Acts uses the words 26 times, but again, it's in reference to the authoritative domain of God. No apostle tells a single person, hey, here's what you got to believe to go to heaven. No apostle says anything along the lines of, if you know, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? These common things that many of you have probably heard in evangelistic messages and, you know, do you, do you know if Jesus came, you know, if, if you died today in a car accident? I mean, I've heard this stuff. If you drove home, and on your way home, you got hit by in a car accident and died. Do you know where you'd spend eternity? Not a single apostle in the book of Acts uses any kind of language like that. Again, the use of heaven is purely in reference to the authoritative domain of God. In Romans, you know, you might expect, hey, Romans, you know, that's like probably the most dense theological treatise of the New Testament, we should probably get this like thorough, systematic theology of the afterlife and, you know, the post-mortem destinations of the soul. But you don't. (laughs) Paul uses the word heaven twice in all of Romans, neither of which have anything to do with the afterlife. Well, what about Corinthians? We could jump into Corinthians. There's nothing about going to heaven when you die in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is the first place in all of the New Testament where we find references to heaven and the afterlife. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting here at verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, 
an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. End quote. So there we see it. Second Corinthians, first time in the New Testament that we see connection to the word heaven having to do with a, a place that we may go to when we die. For we know if this earthly tent, meaning our bodies, where the, the, the place we inhabit is in destroyed, that we still have this hope in a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Here we see Paul addressing like the groanings of our age, you know, people being persecuted. Again, this is where I say the important point about people's questions about what happens when I die is in the face of persecution and suffering. And their question is more attached to, will God set the world right? Will he act justly? If I live in keeping with his commands, if I'm following this Messiah, this Jesus the Messiah, and I'm still experiencing all of the suffering and this, you know, the, the brokenness in the world and the here and now, what hope do I have to look forward to? And so Paul's like, hey, you know what, right now, even as you might be suffering, it's like you are in a, in a temporary tent and God is building an eternal house in heaven for you. You're burdened, you know, you, you, but don't worry. What is mortal and perishable is going to be swallowed up by life. And we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit right now is a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. It's a beautiful picture. In chapter 12, Paul also talks about heaven as a location, but he talks about someone, maybe he's referring to himself, who was caught up in a vision of heaven. But that's it for all of 2 Corinthians. There's one reference in Galatians to heaven, a warning that if even an angel from heaven preached another gospel to not believe that angel, but that's it. Ephesians uses the word heaven nine times, and each of those instances are about Paul, uh, Paul is referring to a, a spiritual dimension above and beyond our imminent material dimension. Paul says, chapter 2 of Ephesians, that, that those who are in Christ are already seated with him in heavenly realms. That's an interesting thing we'd have to throw into the equation, right? Paul says that we are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. Does that, is Paul like primarily referring to some sort of like ontological status? I, I don't know if that's as important as the pastoral implications that we have individually and collectively a new identity in Christ, that Christ is seated in the throne of power, and there we are with him so that we can have assurance that Christ is going to set right the world, that he's going to set all the wrong things right. And again, there's this assurance here that, you know what, you can trust because Christ is seated in heaven, the throne of authority, the, 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 the place of ultimate dominion over the cosmos, and you are there with him. Now, am I there with him? Were those in the first century that Paul was writing to, were they physically there with him? No, but he was speaking of a, a spiritual reality that, would, that these Christians, they were united to Christ, and so they shared in that place of authority with him. In the book of Philippians, there are three references to the word heaven. 
In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. But again, this is not about not belonging here, that, you know, the world isn't our home, et cetera, et cetera. But instead, it's part of an emphasis that Paul makes regularly about those in Christ are part of a new community where Jesus is Lord just as he is in heaven. This is why Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. It is not this Gnostic idea that, you know, the material flesh and blood world that we live in isn't our home. That's not what Paul's getting at. What he's saying is that our citizenship is in heaven, so the Christian community needs to model in its very life and practice the lordship of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord over their community just as he is in heaven. And so we need we're to act as citizens of, that, of that, that heaven in the here and now. Though it may be that, you know, the Roman Empire still rules and reigns, seemingly, there is another dimension to reality in which the Roman Empire is subject to, and Caesar is subject to, and we are citizens of that reality. In the book of Colossians, you've got five references. None of them are about the afterlife, though some could argue um, Colossians 1.5 is, uh, but I believe Colossians 1.5 is really about, um, you know, you can read this in context. I'll read it for you, and you can tell me whether or not you think this is primarily focused on an afterlife hope. Uh, Colossians 1.5, uh, and I'm going to read it in, in its surrounding context, so I'll bring in verse 4 here, read all the way through verse 6. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Man, what an awesome, awesome passage. Is this about, you know, a hope in the afterlife? Well, maybe. You know, there's, there's some sense in which the faith and love that spring up from the hope stored for you in heaven, um, whatever, you know, whether it's saying, like, there's even more of this to come in some, you know, post-mortem reconciliation, great. But Paul seems to be focused on something else. It's about how that faith and love that spring up from the hope stored for you in the abode of God, where Christ rules and reigns, that you've heard about the true message of the gospel, that this gospel, he says explicitly, is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, that there is something God is doing in the whole of the world, not to just get people to escape it, but to transform it. The thing that's happened in you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace God is doing in the whole of creation. So whether or not, you know, this is like, you know, a, an afterlife text or not, seems to be a sub-point to the more crucial point of what God is doing in our world right now. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Thessalonians has two references. Both are about the location of power that Christ rules from and will return from. Two references to heaven. Both of them are not, don't have to do with any sort of, you know, what you need to do here. If you have a question about what happens when you die is you better say a sinner's prayer. And you individually will get to go to heaven. That's not the emphasis in 1 Thessalonians. 
1 Thessalonians refers to heaven and uses it to describe where Christ rules and reigns from and where he will return from. 2 Thessalonians has one reference, and it's used the same way. 1 Timothy has one reference, and it does actually have a post-mortem component. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. End quote. What is Paul focused on here? He's focused again on the rescue and the deliverance of the Lord that no matter what happens, he's been delivered from the lion's mouth, that God is giving him strength to endure. And you know what? If Paul doesn't see in his, you know, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years he might live, if he doesn't live to see the day when everything is set right, he has this full assurance, full assurance that the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, the connection here isn't just dealing with a general sense of anxiety about death. I don't want to dismiss how real that is. I just want to say that's not the primary thing the New Testament authors are focused on. Here again is a hope of, you know what, if I die, I have the hope of the resurrection, that heavenly kingdom. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, um, you might think, well, why just skip 2 Timothy? There's nothing in 2 Timothy. You know, you'll notice some books here are not being mentioned. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, there's no reference to heaven. The word heaven is not found in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. You don't have it in Jude. I'm, I'm just referencing the books that the word is even used at all. Hebrews uses the word 16 times, but each of them, every single one of them, are once again about the domain that Christ was sent from and now dwells in as the seat of all spiritual power. Hebrews 12.23 assures those in Christ that their names are written in heaven and that they can have assurance on judgment day. That's good news, right? Does that have to do post-mortem stuff? Certainly does. But again, the important point in this is that where Christ is, their names are written and they can have assurance on Judgment Day. All right, so there is a message of hope and assurance that when you die, once again, the world has not been set right. You have assurance. Your name has been written in heaven. So when that day comes, when that day comes, which is certainly a component of salvation that they are very focused on. It's like, when is the world going to be set right? When will the wheat and the chaff be separated, the weeds and the tares be separated? The assurance is, you're not a terror. You are in Christ. Your name is in heaven. You have something, uh, a great hope to look forward to on that day. Uh, the epistle of James. James uses the word five times. Not a single one of them. They're about the afterlife in any way, shape, or form. 1 Peter has three references, the first of which in chapter 1 is kind of interesting, right? Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting off of verse 3, Praise be to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
definitely a postmortem um, connection, right? There's an inheritance kept in heaven, and you are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, is this like your primary hope? Is that when you die, you get to go to some disembodied, you know, uh, spiritual resort? No. But there is an inheritance. There is something in the domain of God where Christ rules and reigns. And, and by, by his power, the seat of power in the cosmos, you can have assurance that he's going to protect and keep you until the coming of his salvation is finally revealed in the last days, on the day of judgment, in the last times. So again, connection, future hope, your work is worth it. Your faithfulness, your obedience, your commitment to Christ as Lord is worth it. Hold fast. Second Peter uses it six times, and some of them can be confusing, frankly. Sometimes the word is used in the most common New Testament way to refer to the abode of God, the throne of Christ, etc. But there's a couple poetic instances where the word heaven is used to talk about not the spiritual domain or what you know Paul called in one other place, right, the third heaven but the heavens as merely the skies. Second Peter 3 talks about a, a complete reordering of the cosmos before Christ returns and, and uses some pretty destructive language for that cosmic shakeup. Destruction of heavens by fire and the like, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a scene. But again, we need to understand this is poetic language, and we don't need to over-literalize it in a way that makes us think of like, well, man, this is... Second Peter is prophesying about all-out nuclear war, all these, you know, sorts of really speculative things that some people get into. I think we need to see it as the poetic language for a great shakeup that comes when the world is finally reordered and, and, and properly reoriented towards its, its true telos. And when that happens, there's going to be a shakeup. There's going to be a shakeup, and, and the shakeup that um, is described here in Second Peter, destruction of heavens, that doesn't mean a destruction of God's abode. He's talking about that in the ancient, you know, the ancient world, the way they, they views, viewed the, the cosmological structure of the heavens and the earth. You had um, layers of the heavens. You had the, 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 the heavens, which were like, you could think of it as the lower atmosphere. And then you had the, the second heavens, which were the, the heavens that had the, the stars in the sky, which many cultures believe the stars were the you know, were gods themselves. And then you had, you know, the highest heavens, the third heaven that, you know, Paul talks about. This, this, is, the, this is the abode of God, the true spiritual seat of power in the cosmos. That's not what is being said, talked about here in Second Peter is being destroyed. It is about this reordering of the first or maybe the second heavens in that ancient worldview. Finally, Revelation uses the word heaven a whopping 47 times. But as you go through this, you can see it. Go read, read through this. You just open up Bible Gateway if you want, and uh, you can filter your search for just the, the book of Revelation and uh, look at the instances in which heaven is used. Heaven, again, is the abode and domain of God. It's the spiritual throne of Christ. And there is this final picture. This is the hope that Christians cling to, the final picture of a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, a, a new creation and God making a unified abode of the transcendent and the imminent coming together, heaven and earth becoming one, the throne of God dwelling with humanity in, in, in our world. 
it's the transformation, the complete and total transformation of cosmos to this, this like final perfect reordering of all things. That's the hope that we look, that we look forward to. It has individual application. It has collective application. But Mike, thank you for bringing up this question and allowing me the opportunity to kind of go through the biblical literature on this to demonstrate if you've maybe inhabited contexts where the framing of the whole Christian story in the gospel is like, well, you know what this is all about? This is about you figuring out how to deal with your death anxiety. I think, um, I think Jesus sets us free from that. I truly do. But that's not what the message of the scriptures is focused on. It's not about that. It's not just about answering general metaphysical questions about hap- what happens when we die or, or dealing with our, our, our deep concerns of that experience. We do have a hope in Christ that if we die, you know, we will live again. But what this is primarily attached to is in the working of God's salvation in our world. And if we do not live to see its completion, we have the hope of the resurrection. So this is both an individual work. There's the transformation of the individual heart. There's the transformation of the individual the soul, if you will. You know, even if you're, you're not a body-soul dualist, the, whatever we want to say is the thing that makes you most you, even as your cells break down, you know, and you get new cells. And in some sense, I don't know what part of you is still the same physically from the moment you were born. But there is something about you that makes you you, and that has union with Christ. But guess what? You are also now part of a new community. You've been called into a new vocational calling as the people of God, in which what we should be embodying in our Christian communities is the reorientation of the values of the kingdom of God in our communities, where we are not bound, we're not divided by the normal cultural markers of status, which would say this person is elevated to a higher position and this one's to a lower position. We're not oriented around political agendas, which would keep this, this, this hierarchical structure the same as it is outside of the walls of our church community. No, there's something different. And to be a part of that is good news. It is not just, hey, you as an individual, guess what? There's something good for you. It's like, no, What's good for you is also good for your neighbor. And we are building something here together with Christ as Lord, seated in the heavens as Lord. And we, we have stored up in heaven this, this, this reservoir, uh, this reservoir of, of hope that even now, though we don't experience all of it, God has given us his spirit as a down payment. So we get glimpses of it in Christian, Christian community. Which again is like, I don't know where else in our contextual, uh, in our particular context. And I wrote about this in my, my article for Perfectus magazine. I don't know where else in my cultural context I'm going to build a relationship with an, a non relative in their late 70s, early 80s who has dementia. I don't know where that happens outside of church. I don't know where that happens outside of church where there are people that come in and they ride the bus and there are people that come in and they, 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 they drive in in Teslas and Mercedes and they are all part of the same community. They break the same bread together. 
They drink the same wine or grape juice <laughs> together. They pray together. They hold hands together in prayer. They sing together. It's good news. This is, this is such an integral part of salvation is how this reorients human community. It reorients our values. And to be a part of that is incredible. There are going to be flaws. There were flaws with Christian communities from the very get-go. You're not going to find a flawless Christian community. But what you should hopefully find is a little glimpse of that colony of heaven in a surrounding culture that's often filled with death. So, Mike, thank you for your question. For those of you that have listened and uh, maybe have had similar questions, I hope that you found this response to be helpful. Much more I could say, but I'm going to stop at that point. And and, uh, I think I've given you hopefully enough to chew on. What I'd love to have is if you have further questions to reach out to me in the discussion forum for this episode on Patreon. If you're not ready to support this podcast on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can reach out to me, connect with me on Instagram or Twitter. I do my best to respond over there, but I do prioritize, um, you know, the messages and the the comments that come in on, on Patreon. I do want to give an extra special thanks to those who have been supporting me on Patreon. Thank you to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., Sarah R., Stephen H., Taylor S. Thank you all for your generous support. I appreciate the support throughout the summer, though the podcast has not been as active as it's been in the past. Um, That will probably ramp up when we get back into the fall. Um, But thank you for affording me the opportunity to continue to make progress on the book, Disordered a Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. I'm so excited to share with all of you. We're looking, hopefully, towards a release date of the, the first or second week of September, but that might be a little bit in flux. We'll see how it goes. As always, I look forward to hearing your comments, questions, critiques, objections. Reach out to me at any of the places I've already mentioned. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.